Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, turn your Bibles tonight, if you will, to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. We'll uh, cover the rest of the fourth chapter. We covered uh, the better part of it last week, but we'll cover the remainder of it and get you out in time to go trick-or-treating. I know everybody's... Well, you came dressed for it, I can only assume. (laughs) Chapter 4 of Hebrews... Paul has um, uh, spent, uh, really it starts in uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 down through about the, uh, the 11th verse of uh, chapter 4 and he's, um, uh, he's identifying something from the Old Testament that, uh, to, to make his case. He's, uh, he's uh, making his case from the Psalms, he's making his case from something that David was inspired by the Holy Ghost to, to, uh, to say and again remember that he's writing to the Jews. Um, specifically, he's writing to the Jewish Christians, but he knows this message is going to go all over the place. We have a historical record, and certainly he would expect this, but we have a historical record that this letter was taken to Jerusalem, that it was um, uh, disassembled, if you will, by the, um, uh, by the Jews and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, even all the way up to the high priest. And uh, so it was. Uh, he knows that he's writing to something more than just the folks that he's addressing it to, we have um, uh, on good authority, Paul talking about attaching this to the, um, the letter that he wrote to the Galatians. And uh, consequently, he uses things that, um, that he knows that they're going to be re- able to relate to. Paul's a Jew himself. He was trained as a high priest. He had the same training that any other high priest would ever have. And, um, and, and the book of Hebrews is... Um, is something that I enjoy looking at and taking apart because it helps me see into the mind of Paul. It helps me see into how he would react and, and minister to those who came from the same position that he did. You have to realize that after Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and without a shadow of a doubt was convinced that Jesus was alive, which means he had to have been raised from the dead. He knows everything about his crucifixion. He knows everything about his burial. He knows the stories that the Jews concocted about the disappearance of his body and so forth. So when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything about his training comes apart. Everything about what he was had devoted his life to in persecuting the church came absolutely unraveled. Now, the only reason that the Jews would persecute the church is because if Christianity is the way that it was being presented by the disciples, then that means there's no place for the law of Moses. That means there's no place for the high priest. That means there's no place for the lesser priest. It means there's no place for the Jews, the Jewish rituals and, and festivals and feast days and all the other kinds of things. I mean, the whole world changes in an instant. Well, Paul realized that that's exactly what happened when he meets Jesus and, and, and comes to the, to the knowledge that this is it. It is what the disciples were talking about, the people that I've been persecuting, the people I've been even taking part in their imprisonment, and in Stephen's case, the stoning, the death of, uh, of Stephen. He realizes that it's all, it's all a lie. Everything that he's based his actions on is a lie. And, uh, and don't you know that, that once, uh, especially when Ananias comes in in Acts chapter 9 and uh, lays hands on him and he uh, receives the Holy Spirit. He gets his sight back and he receives the Holy Ghost. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. You know that from that point, point forward, pro- probably even before then, for the last several days while he hasn't had his sight, you know the Holy Ghost starts opening scriptures up to him that he's been trained in. 
he starts drawing things from his heart and things that he's memorized from the time, you know, that he, from a youth when he started being trained in the, the law of Moses. The Holy Ghost starts bringing things back to him and he sees them in a new light. It's not that this applied to Moses, it's that Moses was looking forward to Jesus. And so everything changes for him. Well, he knows these people have the same training as him. And if he can just get the information across to him, if he can just show them the same truths that he's come to realize himself, then not only can he solidify those Jew, Jewish Christians who are kind of half in the law of Moses and half into Christianity, but he can bring everybody else in that he has such a burden for anyway. Paul wrote to the, uh, to the churches, wrote in the letters to the churches that he, to the Romans, he said, he'd be willing to give up his own salvation if he could just get the Jews saved. Why? Why would he care that much about them? I mean, folks, I want to win the world, but I'm not willing to go to hell for anybody. And I don't know anybody that would unless they're just trying to sound good and sound religious and that kind of stuff. I'm not giving up my salvation for anybody. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. I, I dearly want some, dearly want people to get saved. I've got family members that I dearly want to get saved, but I'm not willing to go to hell for them. Paul says he'd be willing to give up his own salvation. Why is that? I can't help but believe that a, that a part of that, at least, is because Paul knows where they're coming from. He knows the blinders that they have on because of the tradition and all the other stuff that he was steeped in all of his life. But if he can just get them to see. And so he builds his case on the Old Testament. He builds his case on uh, a, a big case on uh, what uh, uh, David said about the Jews going into the promised land. He establishes from this, uh, this foundation, Old Testament foundation, that there's still a rest, that the Old Testament said that there was still a rest remaining for the people of God. Now, if that's true, then what was the promised land about? See, they saw the promised land as the rest of God. They thought Joshua brought them into the rest that God had promised. But David said clearly, and Paul points it out time after time after time, and he makes such a big deal about saying today, as it is written, as the Holy Ghost has said, today, don't harden your hearts. Well, if that day has already passed, what's David writing about it for? And so he establishes there's still a day that David was talking about, don't be like the Jews were in, in the Old Testament. Don't be like they were in the, in the wilderness and, and snub or, or, or turn away from the promised land. Because even though we've now entered into the physical, geographical promised land, there's still a rest remaining to the people of God. And so now he's going to tell us more about that and wrap it up. Let's back up to verse uh, 9, and we'll pick up there. He said, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, notice his rest, not their rest, his rest. He that has entered into his rest, he also, the individual, the believer, has also ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, there's two different words that he uses for rest in the fourth chapter. He uses one word for rest that means Sabbath. He uses another word for rest that means something that comes down from above. Now, why does he use two different words? Well, because there are two different ways that the Jews looked at a rest. One is very specific and very, very much integrated into their law, and that is the Sabbath day. You know all the, ret- the rules and rituals and, and, and traditional things that you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day and that kind of stuff. Well, the Bible says that God put an end of all of his works on the Sabbath day. Now, folks, here's what you need to understand. God didn't quit when he created the earth. God didn't quit because he was tired. 
The Bible says, we may look at the scripture in Isaiah chapter 40. The Bible says that, that, that there is no faint to God. He's not weary. He doesn't get weary. Well, then why did he stop? What's the point of the Sabbath? What's the point of him making an end of all of his works? Because when God gets things done, that's all there is to do. And that's why he entered into his rest. Now, the Sabbath day was his day of rest. But God hadn't made anything since that day either. He's been resting ever since the end of the sixth day. Now, the other word that's used for rest is something that comes down from above. Did you, uh, did you notice that I made a big deal about his rest? He that has entered into his rest. Folks, of all the philosophies on the earth, for all the doctrines and for all the everything that there is, Christianity is the only thing that offers you God's presence. Every other philosophy, every other doctrine, every other religion has some uh, exercise to some place of contentment, some higher consciousness. They call it a bunch of different things, but it's all this work yourself into a place where then you can be at comfort and be comforted and, and relax and all this kind of stuff. Christianity is the only thing that ever offers you God's presence. You can't find any Muslim that's working for the presence of Allah. They may have some convoluted idea about 77 virgins when they get to paradise, but there's no other religion, there is no other doctrine, no other ism on the face of the earth, no philosophy, no nothing that offers you the presence of God except Christianity. And that's what this word, the second word that's used for rest means. It means something that comes down from above. Now that's what the Bible said, is talking about when Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, not like the peace that the world offers, my peace I give to you. What peace is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Ghost. John chapter 16, he's talking about when the comforters come, he will do these things for you. He's talking about his peace being the presence of the Holy Ghost, God himself. And that's the peace that passes understanding. Because without God's presence, you can't have comfort in situations that you should be coming unwrapped. And it's only the presence of God that does that. Keep that in mind. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. Notice verse 11 again. It says, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. The word let us labor, the phrase let us labor literally comes from a root word that means to make haste. It means to make haste. It means to be diligent. To be diligent. Uh, hold your finger here. Let's go ahead and turn back to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. I want you to see something about this. Because Paul knows that these guys know these scriptures. He knows that they're well acquainted with the rest that is spoken of in the Old Testament. By the way, let me remind you, I won't have you turn back there, but let me remind you that in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, he knows this, that they're well aware and well acquainted with this as well. And this is one of the problems that the Jews, the religious leaders of the Jews, and that's what I mean when I use that phrase, the Jews, he knows this is one of the problems that the religious leaders are having because when the Holy Ghost is poured out, it's clearly evident that people are speaking in other tongues. Well, that's unheard of. And it's spoken of very, very briefly in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 27, verse 11, it says, For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak unto this people. 
So he knows that they know that speaking with tongues is the fulfillment of a prophecy that Isaiah gave. He went further in verse 12, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Isaiah is prophesying about the Jews that when the baptism of the Holy Ghost or when the Holy Ghost is poured out and people are baptized in the Spirit and begin to speak with other tongues, the Jews aren't going to hear that. But again, it's his presence that is the rest of God. That's what Paul is talking about where he says it remains, therefore, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Isaiah chapter 40, let's start reading in verse 28. He said, hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Well, that tells us, that says very clearly then, God didn't stop creating the earth and the universe and everything that was there after six days because he was tired. God can't get tired. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. I don't have to worry about somebody having a special camp meeting and, and tying up the lines if I need God. I don't have to worry about, you know, in times past, trying to make contact with the Lord and him answering back and saying, you know, I've been talking to Brother Hagen, I've been talking to Oral Roberts all day long, they've got some big needs, can you wait till tomorrow? God's more than enough. So there's no searching of his understanding. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. <laughs> That's a good thing. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord. Now keep this in context with what we just read over in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 4. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into his rest. Here's the rest. Here's how you labor to enter into his rest. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. This word wait is a continuous action word, verb. It literally means those that continue to wait. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. What is waiting on the Lord? Waiting on the Lord is getting into his presence with prayer and song. It's literally saying those that are diligent and continually seek the face of God through his word, fellowshipping with him through his word, through prayer and through praise, that's who finds the rest. That's how you get the presence of God come down upon you. That's how you get this presence from above that puts you in a position where you're at rest. And that, that coincides exactly with what he said in uh, chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. That's why speaking with tongues is such a wonderful benefit. It brings the presence of God on the scene. Your spirit that's connected to the Holy Spirit brings the presence of God on the scene in your situation. He knows they know these scriptures. He may not have, he may not be aware that they've tied them together yet, but if he can get them open to the, to the presence of God, get those in the, the religious community that aren't saved, get their eyes open to Jesus being the Messiah, then they'll see the same things that he saw because they've got the same training he had. Back to Hebrews chapter 4. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after that same example of unbelief. Now, I want you to compare this with verse 1 of chapter 4. Compare verses 1 and verse 11. Verse 1, it says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us, us is not in there, it's in, the, it's in italics, uh, so that it's not in the original uh, transcript. So we'll read it without it. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. 
Now in verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. This, uh, this, uh, in, in verse 1, we talked about this last time we were together, I believe. It says, lest any of you seem to come short of it. The word seem means to appear. It's talking about action. He's talking about a, a manner of life. He's saying, don't let your Christian walk have any appearance of coming short of any of the promises of God. But this phrase, come short of, this phrase, come short of, means to be a day late. To be a day late. Now, remember the whole of chapter, th- the, the, well, the last part of last half of chapter three and the, and the first half of chapter four is talking about the example of Israel in the wilderness. Remember? Why does he talk about coming short of or being a day late and other people following after their example? You're going to have to put your finger here. We're going to come back to Hebrews chapter 4, but turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. He knows they know this. And this is what he's been setting up all along. It's, it's unclear to us because we don't have the same training. We don't have the same customs. We don't have the same traditions. But he knows they know this. He's made very clear that he's talking about the example of Israel not entering into the promised land. We know that, right? That He couldn't be more clear about that. David refers to the very same thing, and he's quoted David four times in chapter 4. Same verses of Scripture four times in chapter 4. He must be trying to make a point where he says, Today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. He's talking about Israel in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 13 tells us the story of the 12 spies going into the promised land. Israel comes to the Jordan River. On the other side of the Jordan River, this is Moses still in charge. They're about two and a half years out of Egypt. It's taken two years for them to travel the distance from uh, from Egypt to the Promised Land. And during that time, most of that time, they stayed camped in one place. And uh, and they received the, the tablets of stone. They received the Ten Commandments. God communicated His law to the children of Israel by Moses. That's when they saw on Mount Sinai the, the thunders and the lightnings and the clouds and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and everybody was afraid. They made some mistakes. When Moses was up on the mountain, they did the golden calf thing. It's, it's not all been a party. It's not all been, you know, clear sailing. Well, it was a party for them, but it was a wrong party. But it hadn't been clear sailing for them, but they've gotten there. And it hadn't taken them very long. The, the memory of the miracles and things that God has done is fresh in their mind because they didn't just happen in Egypt. They didn't just happen when they came out of Egypt. They've seen the cloud every day. They've seen the pillar of fire every night. They've seen poisonous waters turn sweet. They've seen water come out of a rock. They've seen manna. They've eaten quail that came from nowhere. They've seen the miracles of God day after day after day. It's been a pretty continuous stream. And so now they come to the edge of the promised land. Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land. One spy, one person to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. You know the story. They come back. They bring the fruit of the of the land. They said, wow, this land is good. It's just like God said. It is a land that flows with milk and honey, but there are giants in that land. And those giants have big cities, and those cities have big walls. And their armies are bigger than us, and they're bigger than us, and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. Caleb steps up and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't be afraid of them. Now, the Bible doesn't say he says so, but you can just hear it in his voice. He's saying, remember Egypt. They were too much for us too, but look at what God did. Look at the water that came from the rock. Look at the manna that appears every morning. Look at this stuff. Don't be afraid of them. 
They're no match for God. You can just hear it in what he's saying. But they lifted up their voice. The other ten said, no, we can't do it. And the Bible says that they brought up an evil report unto the Lord uh, about the land of which they had searched, saying, we are not able to take the land. The evil report was what they said. The evil report was unbelief. Paul has just established that in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. He said it was because of their unbelief that they couldn't enter enter in. Only those which believe do enter into his rest. He's established that. He knows that they understand that. He's confirmed that over and over again in his teaching to them. But what happens after that? Chapter 14 tells us that the congregation, uh, so far it's just been the, the 12 spies talking it out. Ten of the 12 said, no, we can't do it. Caleb is the one that we are aware of so far at the end of chapter 13 that spoke up and said, yeah, we can do it. God's on our side. He'll, he'll make it happen. But all the congregation lifted up their voice, chapter 14, verse 1, and cried, and the people wept that night, and they murmured against Moses and against Aaron and said, oh, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? Then they said, let us, uh, said one another, verse 4, let us make it a captain and return to Egypt. Yeah, let's go back to bondage. Maybe they'll take us back as slaves. Folks, when you start listening to your feelings, when you give attention to circumstances, you'll think all kinds of stupid things. I mean, that's just stupid. Let's go back to Egypt? And do what? Be slaves again? They came to kill you. Now you want to walk back to Egypt and say, well, maybe they'll accept us. Let's knock on the front door. Does that even make sense? That's what happens when you give in to your feelings. It's when you happen, that's what happens when you let the circumstances affect your feelings and you give in to them. So they said, let's make a captain and go back to Egypt. Um, verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. So now we know about Caleb and Joshua both being on the same side. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord. They realize it's speaking against God. It's saying that you can't do what God said you can do that's rebelling against God. Boy, I wish the church could figure that out today. Do you realize that everybody says, well, God doesn't heal everybody, is rebelling against God because the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed? Every time somebody says God doesn't heal everybody, every time someone, I don't care how well-known or how famous the preacher is, every time somebody takes a position that says, well, that doesn't work for everybody, they're rebelling against God because they're saying God's word's a lie. That's what the ten spies did. They said, no, God lied to us because there are giants that live in that land. Why wouldn't they stop and consider maybe God knew somebody lived there already? Joshua says, only rebel not against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of this land. Folks, i got to tell you, I think those two things go hand in hand. If you're not going to rebel against God, then you're not going to be able to be afraid of the things that stand in your way. Whether that's a lie that the devil's telling you or a physical obstacle or whatever. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of this land, for they are bread for us. In other words, he's saying they're the ones that grew this fruit. That everybody's raving about and everybody's oohing and on over. Their bread for us, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Second time. 
But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And that's when the glory of the Lord appears. And the Lord says, uh, God starts talking and says a bunch of stuff. We won't read all through it. Um, verse 21, uh, verse 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. This is when Moses says, don't wipe out everybody. So he says, I have pardoned according to my word. Or thy word, Moses. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. The folks, oh, I love this scripture. Because please understand, and Paul makes this point in Hebrews chapter 4. These are the people. This is the generation that he said would enter into the promised land. But they didn't. God said the promised land was theirs. But they didn't take it. Now, Israel did enter into the promised land. So what God said would happen did happen. But they chose that it wouldn't happen for them. So the promises of God are true even if somebody fails to receive them. Folks, if I die of sickness, the word about healing is still true. And it wouldn't matter what happens to me. Anything that says the word of God is not true is a lie. My life included. My experience included. So many times something happens and Christians get all upset about, well, I don't know, they just seem to be such a strong Christian and how could this happen to them? I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't change the truth of the Word. Nobody is above the Word. Nobody gets a pass either. Just because I preach it doesn't mean I don't have to live it. I do. Everybody does. So he says, as truly as I live, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. In other words, these people may not take advantage of it, but what I said will come to pass. Because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, both places, and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice. You go back and you read these things. There were ten different things that they provoked God by saying what he told them wasn't true. Ten different places in this story where they provoked him. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoke me see, the, see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and, and has followed me fully. I love that scripture, that phrase. And has followed me fully. What did Caleb do? He just said we can do it. He didn't let the circumstances turn him away. He said we can do it. Don't be afraid of the people there. We can do this. God's on our side. We can do this. That's it. Because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereunto he went and his seed shall possess it. Joshua chapter 14 tells us about when that happened. Um, verse 26, And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I've heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which murmur against me. Say unto them, as truly as I live. I need to repeat this. You may be familiar with this because of what we've talked before. But anytime the Bible says, anytime God says, as truly as I live, or anytime he says, truly, truly, he's making a point. This phrase, as truly as I live, literally means it's an oracle of God. It means he's establishing an unchanging law. Here's the law that never changes. God said, here it is, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Folks, that never changes. It was true in their day. It's true in our day. It'll be true for eternity. Your words govern your life. As truly as I live, saith the Lord. It's an unchanging, eternal law of God. 
As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Now, folks, think about that in context. He's not saying as truly as I live, as you have spoken in my my ears, that's what I do. He's saying your words govern what you receive. Please understand, your faith doesn't change God. God can't change. Your confession doesn't change God. God's word has been spoken. It's eternal. It's established. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fail. It is established. Your words only change what you can receive. It determines what you can receive, not what God is or not what God has done, but only what he has already established that now becomes yours. That's what he means. That's why you look at the body of Christ and it looks really uneven. You see some people that have more than other people. You see some people that walk in a greater degree of health than other people. And so many times Christians look around and say, well, I don't understand that at all. Never changing law of God. As you have spoken into my ears, so shall I do unto you. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we're supposed to judge the other guy to see if they're doing better than us? No, that means we're supposed to get our eyes on ourselves and what we're saying. The other guy's, his responsibility is between him and God. Unchanging law of God is, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Then he says the whole crowd will fall in the wilderness. Everybody from 20 years old and upwards. Uh, verse 34, after the number of the days in which you have searched the land, even 40 days, each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities, even 40 years, and, sh- and uh, you shall know by breach of promise. Verse 36 um, and 37, it talks about the 10 spies who spoke against uh, uh, the promise of God. They fell dead by the plague before the Lord. There are two schools of thought here. This could mean, because of the language we don't know exactly, it could mean that they died in the wilderness by the plague, or it could mean they fell dead instantly. We don't know exactly. It just says Caleb and Joshua lived. They died before the Lord because of the plague, and Caleb and Joshua lived. Verse 39. Now I'm going to start reading here a few verses. Remember where we started? Coming short of the promise of God. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore fear lest... Uh, left a uh, promise being left of us not entering in. We seem to come short of it. That means being a day late. Here's what this means. Verse 39, And Moses told these sayings unto all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early. You can't make these people happy. They said they wanted to go back to Egypt, die in Egypt or die in the wilderness. Now God says, okay, that's what will happen. And now they're crying about it. So they rose up early in the morning and got them up to the top of the mountain saying, now this is the next day, saying, lo, we be here and we'll go up to the place which the Lord has promised for we have sinned. And Moses said, wherefore do you now transgress the commandment of the Lord? It shall not prosper. Don't go up for God's not with you. You go up and you'll be smitten by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not go with you. But they presumed to go up unto the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. They went by themselves. Everything else stayed in put. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites which dwell in that hill, and smote them and discomforted them, even unto Hormah. Here's the point. The next day... They did everything that was necessary the day before 
for victory. The next day they went up and said, okay, we'll go take the land. We'll do it. We'll go accomplish the promise of God. But they were a day late. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 means. That's what Moses is talking about. He's saying, let us therefore fear. He's talking to the Jews. You need to have respect unto the promises of God. Because you don't want to be a day late like your forefathers were. That's what kept them out of the wilderness. That's or kept them in the wilderness out of the promise of God. That's what kept them from entering into the rest of God. Only those which believe do enter into the rest. That's Caleb and Joshua. He's saying, don't be a day late believing God. Now, folks, what I want you to understand is everything they did here in chapter 14, verse 40, everything they said, we're here and we'll go up into the place which the Lord has promised. If they had done that the day before, they would have taken the promised land. The same exact action one day earlier would have saved them 40 years in the wilderness and a whole generation dying. They were a day late in what they did and as a result, didn't work. Hebrews chapter 4. Do you see the case Paul is making? These Jews know this. They know all about the forefathers in the promised land. They know all about the time in the wilderness. They know all about this stuff. So when he talks about David speaking about this point in time, David being inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. He knows they know what this is about. He knows that they did the right thing, but a day late and it didn't work because they were late. If they had done the same thing the previous day, they would have taken the promised land. Paul's saying, don't miss your chance by failing to hear what Jesus is saying to the church. Verse 11, let us therefore labor. To enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, verse 12, for, literally, because, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, for the word of God is quick and powerful, literally means full of life and full of energy. In other words, he's built a case for the word of God being powerful enough to enter in, uh, powerful, uh, uh, powerful enough to bring anything to pass that God has spoken. He's saying the word itself is the key. Now, the example that he uses is blind to us because we don't come from the, their time period. We don't know what's being talked about. Under this, at this point in time when these things are written, the Jews are under Roman rule. And they remain under Roman rule until 70 A.D. when the temple is destroyed and then, then things start changing for them. But at this point in time, there's a temple. There's a high priest in operation there in, uh, in Jerusalem, in the temple in Jerusalem, everything. The temple sacrifices, all this stuff is going on. And so when he says, for the word, is, uh, word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, he's using the example that they know about. Now, I assume you don't know this, so I'm going to let you know what the historical significance of this is. The Jews conquered, I mean, uh, the Romans conquered the world by a new weapon. It's like the Romans came up with a nuclear bomb of the day. You know what it was? It was an 18 to 22 inch sword. Prior to that point in time, and you've seen some of the knights in shining armor movies and stuff like that, they had these, these swords and these shields that you had to have people to help you carry. And the whole thing was the bigger and the heavier the better. And you get this thing and you'd, you'd have to rear back. And, you know, these strong guys would get this thing going, trying to give as much 
speed behind it as they could and that kind of thing. And so they're pounding on each other in armor, suits of armor and chain mail and all that kind of stuff. The Romans developed this 18-inch sword. And this thing was honed down to, to razor sharp. And when the Romans first came upon the battlefield against these other guys that are carrying these maces and, and these giant swords and all this kind of stuff, their enemies laughed at the Romans. You're going to fight with that. I mean, they carried them in little, little sheaths on their belt. Pull this little thing out. You don't have to have a page carrying the sword for you. You don't have to have somebody carrying your stuff. They're self-sufficient. They're, they're fully mobile. They pull out their swords. Their enemies laughed at them. But folks, here's the deal. While all the enemies are trying to get their swords going and get enough, uh, you know, um, power behind them to do some good and to get enough swing and, and inertia and all that kind of stuff that it takes, the Romans are slicing and dicing them. And you get one of these things, I mean, obviously, if one of these big heavy swords hits you, you're in big trouble. But the things are going slow as molasses. You can duck. So they'd duck out of the way and then... And they became the rulers of the world off of an 18-inch sword. That's the word for sword that Paul uses in verse 12. He said the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. He's not talking about these big things that everybody except the Romans are still trying to use and still trying to make work. He's talking about this little thing that can be used for anything. You could peel an apple with this little sword. Couldn't do that with one of the big ones. In other words, the word can be used in every area and every aspect of your life. It's not just for dress uniforms. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing asunder, just like the Romans would cut their enemies to shreds. That's what the Word of God does between the physical and the spiritual. Now, Paul has two purposes for talking about this. Number one, he's saying the Word is the way you enter into the rest. There'd be no reason for him to talk about the Word of God when he's talking about laboring to enter into rest unless the Word has some connection to that labor. Now, what is the labor? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. In other words, shall enter into his rest. What is that labor? That labor is to be diligent, but diligent in what? Diligent in the presence of God. Diligent in the word of God. Folks, you're never going to know God outside of his word. The best that anybody can do is get a feeling or an emotion going for them every now and then when the music is just right in church. And that's why you've got charismatics in times past that have been such nutcases. Because it's all been emotion-based. Paul says that the Word of God divides between the emotional or the soul and the spiritual. It's not a matter of emotions. Children of Israel failed to enter in because they got carried away by their emotions. So that must not be what believing is about, is it? So he said, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Every one of those things, he uses three examples. Every one of those things is a division between the physical and either the spiritual or the soul and the spirit. And he's telling them the word of God is the source whereby you can judge whether or not you're really saved. Because verse 13 Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Another translation says, There is no creature that is not laid bare before the Lord. How? By the word. 
Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Folks, what was the purpose of the law? Again, he's writing to the Jews who know. The whole purpose of the law was to show that man was guilty. In other words, to prove that man was without hope in and of himself so that he would shut his mouth. Everything about the Old Testament was to shut your mouth about who you are, about what you can do on your own, about who you are before God. The Bible says no man will have an answer when he stands before the Lord. Why? I cannot imagine some of the unsaved people that I know of or, or, you know, are acquainted with, I can't imagine them not having something to say. They always have something to say. Not before the Lord. Why? Because the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides between the physical and the spiritual. In other words, no man will have an answer against the Word. So just as the Old Testament was designed to shut man up where his own righteousness was concerned, the New Testament is designed for man to open his mouth and boldly declare that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Because nobody can claim to be there on his own. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now, folks, there was a high priest at that point in time. We don't know exactly how the high priest worked. We know that there were different high priests at different points in time. For example, the, uh, the high priest in Jesus' day was Caiaphas. The high priest, in, uh, by the time Acts uh, uh, comes along, is another guy. There are one, uh, there's several different high priests mentioned in the, in the book of Acts. One was a man named Annas. Another guy in Acts chapter 23 is a na- man named Ananias. So we don't know how often they trained, they, they rotated out. But however often it was, I, I don't know if one guy stood in the office until he died or, or if it's a, if it's a period of time or something. There's no instruction given in the Bible for who will be and how long. So nobody really knows. We can see historical evidence and writings and, and things like that of different people that were high priests at different times. Well, we don't know why one stopped and another started. Nobody knows. So here, where it says that, and whoever is, is the high priest at the time uh, that Paul is writing, there's another guy there. So Paul is going to talk in the next several chapters about Aaron, who is the first high priest. He's going to talk about Melchizedek. We know about Melchizedek, a little bit about him. Man, he was something special. But nobody in the Bible is ever called a great high priest. Yet Paul talks about Jesus that way. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now, why does he say great high priest? Because he's saying Jesus is better than any high priest that there's ever been, including the one that you've got now that's reading the letter. Now, nobody would expect Aaron to be a high priest in heaven, would they? He was a high priest here on the earth, but that doesn't make you a high priest in heaven. Nobody would expect Melchizedek to be a high priest in heaven. The Bible identifies that men served in that office here on the earth, not Jesus. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. In other words, he's our high priest now. His purpose on the earth was to become the high priest in heaven. Meaning you've got a heavenly high priest. What do you need an earthly one for then? Folks, that's what all of the law of Moses was about. It's about coming up with some go-between and some ritual sacrifice and ritual action that would put you in good standing with God. You don't need that. Why? Because we've got a great high priest that's already passed into the heavens. Do you see the point that he's making? 
That's a part of ceasing from your own works. That's a part of entering into his rest. Just like God rested on the Sabbath day when the work was done, Jesus has done the work. He's already established that he went to the cross, he was raised from the dead, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. The work is finished. What do we need to do anything else for then? Do you see the point he's making? See the argument that he's making? And he's warning them. Again, the whole thing is, is, uh, is based on the premise, don't be a day late. Today is the day to hear his voice and not harden your hearts. Today is the day to accept salvation. Today is the day to accept Jesus. He's the high priest. Don't be late. Seeing then we have a, a high priest, a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. No mixing words about that, is there? He's saying Jesus is the Son of God. And that's what it all hinges on. You're going to have to decide. If Jesus is the Son of God and He's the great high priest, there's no earthly sacrifice left to be made. If Jesus is the great high priest, the Son of God, who's passed into the heavens, there's no keeping the Sabbath today and the same rituals and the laws and the festivals and all that other kind of stuff. Because it's based there, not here now. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, what are we supposed to do? Let us hold fast our profession. In other words, open your mouths. And they know, just like you and I should know, that everything about the story in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 where they didn't enter in was because of their mouths. That's the point that Paul is building on. Now we have a great high priest that's passed to the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Therefore, we should open our mouths boldly. We should proclaim to the high heavens that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that His Spirit does live within us, that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that all the blessings of Abraham are ours now. That's what he's trying to say because we have a great high priest. Well, what does he administer? The high priest here on the earth, he's going to talk about this in the, in the next, uh, the upcoming chapters. He said high priests that are here on the earth, they administer things that people bring them to God. Well, if Jesus is our high priest in heaven, what does he administer? The words of our mouths. That goes back to chapter 3, verse 1. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. The only thing God's got to work with is the same eternal unchanging law that he said back in Numbers chapter 14. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Verse 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The word touched is the Greek word sympathy or to have compassion for. He said, Our high priest is not somebody that doesn't have compassion for us. We have a high priest that is full of sympathy and compassion for us. Why? Because he was tempted in all points like as we are. The only difference between us and him is he didn't sin. You ever been tempted to steal? That means Jesus was too. You ever been tempted to say the wrong thing? That means Jesus was too. You ever been tempted to do with adultery or fornication or something, lustful thoughts or actions? That means Jesus had to be too. Folks, the idea was that, that the religion has is that Jesus was the Son of God, so he couldn't have sinned. That's not true. He could have sinned anywhere along the way, but he didn't. 
He had the same temptations to deal with that you and I do. When we go to him, and, and this is a part of holding fast our profession. God expects you, this word profession means to be open and honest with God. I think a lot of faith people have this idea that you're not supposed to be real. You know, I mean, the, we talk about feelings and not being uh, governed by our feelings, and that's certainly true. We, we can't be governed by our feelings. But there's a lot of times that I go to the Lord and say, Lord, I really don't feel like doing this or that. And if it's, if it's all possible, I'd like to go another way with this. But this is what your word says, so I'm going to do what your word says. That's holding fast your profession. That's him being able to relate to where you're coming from. That's like him saying, yeah, read that story in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, I got you on that one. It's not some hard, uncaring, unfeeling thing. He knows where you're coming from. He can have sympathy and have compassion for you where you're coming from. There have been times where I've been in the middle of a faith fight and I've just said, Lord, I, I'm just tired. I want to give up. And I've just felt comforted. I've felt comfort of God on the inside because he knows the next thing I'm going to say. But I'm not going to do it. I feel like giving up. I want to give up, but I'm not going to do it. That's part of holding fast your profession. God's looking for his people to be real with him. Good or bad. So we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore. Let us therefore. Because we have a great high priest, because the word of God lays everything bare anyway, Because he sympathizes and has compassion with our situations and where we're coming from. Because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Not sheepishly. Not feeling guilty because we have missed it. Folks, the fact that you have missed it is the very reason why you need a high priest. Sinners don't, I mean, uh, righteous people don't need a Savior. Sinners do. People that mess up needs God's help. People that get in situations that are too big for them need the, the mercy and the grace of God to help them in that time of need. That's exactly what he's saying. Now remember, it all comes back to, to verse 12. We've got to come with the Word. Because we're supposed to hold fast the profession of our faith. Well, what's the profession of our faith? The profession of our faith, folks, is the speaking of the word. So that's how we come boldly. Bring the word with you. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may, find, and may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This phrase, in time of need, means literally whenever you need it. Whenever you need it. You know, it's interesting that it doesn't say the throne of God. And his grace is made available. It's called the throne of grace. Now what is grace? Grace is the finished work of Jesus. And all that belongs to us because that work is done. So he's saying the whole purpose of Jesus being at the right hand of the Father. Being a great high priest. Passed into the heavens. That can sympathize and have compassion for us in our situations. The whole purpose is that there's grace there and he's the way to obtain that mercy and find grace to help. Yet what do we do? 
We feel bad, so we stay away from God. We feel guilty because of the things that we've messed up, and, and then we, we stay away from God. We forfeit the very grace and mercy that we need in, time, in the times that we need it because of our feelings. That's what he's saying don't do. That's what he's saying, hold fast the profession of your faith. In other words, continue to claim and declare that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, even though you may have just messed up big time. Because Jesus can help you. Now from here in chapter 5 and 6 and 7, he's going to talk about the high priest. He's going to tell us about what high priests do. He's going to describe everything that Jesus will provide for us, just like the high priestly office was designed here on the earth. And how that Jesus is a better high priest than either Aaron or Melchizedek. But folks, the bottom line is very simply this. You've got a high priest. You've got somebody that will help you no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, no matter how many times you've done it or haven't done it, no matter how you've messed up, you've got a high priest that's there to help you as many times as you need the help. It's a throne of grace. It's a finished work throne And therefore, a throne that has all the blessings of that finished work. And he's there for your benefit. Now, Paul knows that these religious Jews, many of the people that have torn up the church at Galatia and and come from Jerusalem to tear up the other churches that Paul started, come from the high priest himself. And so Paul knows what he's saying by the Holy Ghost. He knows that he's saying, since we've got Jesus as our high priest, why do we need man? Nobody could compare with Jesus. Jesus passed on into the heavens. There was no earthly barrier that could stop him from taking that place as our heavenly high priest. So what do you need man filling that role for? What do you need to listen to what somebody else here on the earth tells you that you should or shouldn't do to be okay with God? You've got a high priest in the heavens that you are to bring the confession of the word to to obtain help. You see his point? Paul ties these people in knots. There's nowhere for them to go. And it's just line upon line. It's point upon point, chapter upon chapter. They have absolutely no answer by the end of the book. None whatsoever. And you and I are in the same boat too. I wonder how many, I don't know how it works when we get to heaven. But let's just imagine for a minute. Look at how many Christians forfeit the grace of God and the blessings of the finished work of Jesus trying to carry things on here on the earth or feeling guilty and and therefore not looking to him for help. What are we going to say when we get to heaven and Jesus says, I was here to help you. That's the reason why I stayed here instead of coming back to the earth. I was here at the right hand of God to help you. Why didn't you let me help? I've always been fascinated by a scripture in the Bible that says that in heaven, God will wipe away every tear. I heard that growing up as a kid, and it did, I never really thought about it. But one day I thought, wait a minute. If he wipes away every tear, that means we'll be crying in heaven. What are people going to be crying about in heaven? The more I read, the more I grow in the things of God, I'm convinced one of the greatest sources of tears in heaven will, when, will be when people get to heaven and see what they could have had or could have done here on the earth. But they only let the wrong thinking keep them out of it. They only let their own feelings or their own thoughts or their own traditional ideas Keep them from obtaining the grace and mercy to help when they needed to help. I've made one of my life's purposes, one of my pursuits in life. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to have anything to cry about. I don't know if I'm there 100%, but I'm, I'm closing in, doing the best I can to get there. 
I don't want God to have to wipe away any tears of mine. I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want Jesus to say, it's good to see you. We've been working together for a long time. Instead of, why wouldn't you let me help? That's why I was here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we do have a great high priest. Jesus, the son of God who has passed into the heavens. Thank you, Father, that we can hold fast the profession of our faith. We can declare with boldness that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We can declare with boldness that the Spirit of God, the greater one, lives in us. We can declare with boldness that we're led into peace and led into victory, that he orders our steps and leads us by the Spirit of God. We can declare, Father, that whatever we need, you're always there to help us. Father, it's so good to know that it doesn't depend on us, but that Jesus finished the work. We endeavor to do the best we can, Father. We endeavor to walk in righteousness and let it be shown in our lives. But, oh, Father, if we fail, you see us just the same as if we make it 100% of the time. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our great high priest. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.